is Rabbanit Leia Sarna and Rabbi David Walkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We're the official podcast of Anche Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation. I love how you say the official podcast because it suggests that maybe in the future there will be many unofficial podcasts as well joining this one. That is the dream, absolutely. So we're an Orthodox synagogue in Chicago, Illinois. Um, and in this week's episode, we will be discussing Parshat Shmini, this week's Parsha. Uh, we'll have a little segment about dishwashers on Pesach, because who doesn't love a good dishwasher? And we'll have an interview with our board member and member, Rabbi Paul Seeger. So Parashat Shmini, which will be read this week, is a rich parasha, as are they all. But perhaps the most dramatic episode in this week's parasha is the uh, account of the death of Nadav and Avihu. Just to remind ourselves, Nadav and Avihu are the eldest sons of Aaron, uh, Moshe's brother, the first Kohen Gadol, the first high priest. And on the day, the Biyom HaShmini, the inaugural day of the Mishkan, which really should have been a fully joyous and triumphant day for the entire Jewish people, they brought a, an Eish Zara, a, a strange foreign a fire, a Shiloti Vautam, that had not been commanded to be brought in the context of uh, the ritual in the Mishkan. And instantly, the Torah tells us, a fire comes out from, from God, a, a divine fire, and uh, incinerates them, consumes them, and they die there in the presence of God. And the next uh, dozen or so more than a dozen verses uh, then describe the aftermath of their death and the special instructions that God gives to uh, how they're to be disposed of, what's done with the uh, ritual items that they were involved in, uh, and uh, instructions are further given to avoid this type of mishap uh, in the future. But uh, for our purposes, we're going to focus just on a few uh, words, a few a few very uh, specific sukim. We're going to see what some of the commentaries uh, have said about them. I've always been really heavily on Team Nadav Avihu. I, I kind of feel like if I were a child of Aaron, I would have been Nadav and Avihu. They're so excited. He spent the four, four parshas. We build the Mishkan. They're sitting there watching, waiting. Their clothes are being designed. They're, you know, trying them on, whatever. Like... It's, I, you can imagine this day is like a, a wedding or something, kind of for them. Uh, how excited they must have been, and I don't know. You mess a little thing up, and then it's all over. It's it's very you know. Well, let's say before before you <laughs> we go there and we we we, we jump onto the team Nadav and Avihu bandwagon. I feel like let's let's look a little bit more into what they did and uh, and the consequences. Right, uh, exactly. So Rashi Rashi on Hashem. So fire come, came out. From before Hashem. So Rashi says, Rashi brings two different ideas about why they might have died. One is Rabbi Eliezer, Omer. Rabbi Eliezer says, Lo Aaron, So they only died because they taught halacha, they taught, they taught Allah in front of um, Moshe, their teacher. Let's pause there and just unpack that a minute. What What is so problematic about teaching Torah in the presence of one's teacher? And uh, where does Rashi get this from? Where does he, how does he know this? Great. So both good questions. There's a general principle about not teaching Torah in front of your teachers without their permission. Um, so of course, meaning people do it all the time, but but you might see people kind of get up and, and say Birshut Harav or something like that when they begin a Torah, Torah with the permission of the Rav, and that's where it comes from, this halacha, that when you have someone who's your source of Torah, you shouldn't preempt that source of Torah from speaking with your own uh, iteration of just what's just their Torah, um, and so that's that's one of the that's one way to understand the prohibition on on teaching Torah in front of your teacher, um, and where this comes from. So if you look at the Torah Tamima, which is a compilation of 
on every verse in the Torah that there is, uh, that, that kind of gets discussed in the Talmud, the Torah Tamima will bring uh, that Talmudic source, and it's organized according to the verses in the Torah instead of according to the order of the Talmud. Yeah, it's a great, I just, it's a, I'll give a, a plug for the Torah Tamima, <laughs> not that he needs uh, my endorsement. It, he was uh, uh, from a very important you know, scholar in his own right and from a very prominent uh, Lithuanian rabbinic family, uh, but he worked as a banker by profession. And this is a safer that he wrote for, you know, the common Jew in the pew, okay? For something, some people who maybe get a little bit uh, bored at times, uh, you know, during the Torah reading and want something else to read uh, and to, to study uh, in shul. And I think that was his motivation for writing this. So each verse, you can buy it as a, uh, it's like a chumash, like a, you can, five you know, a five-part set and you can, you know, bring bring a bring a, a volume with you to shul. And each verse in the Torah, he collects uh, from rabbinic literature relevant places where his favorite uh, that, that, that use the verse, verse by verse, in the Torah. And then what's also really, really helpful, uh, in addition to just getting great midrashim on each verse, he also will explain how that particular midrash, how the rabbis read the verse in the Torah. So he draws that connection between the words of the Torah and the rabbinic use of that, of that verse. So it's really great work. It does not exist yet in English or any other translation as far as I know, but for those who uh, have uh, basic uh, Hebrew reading literacy, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, and really enjoyable safer. So he tells us that this idea quoted by Rashi comes from uh, Erevin Samech Gimel, Erevin 63. Um, and in Erevin, the, the Gemara asks, Umay Darush, what did, what did they teach before their, their master Moshe? Um, and it explains, So in, in Vekra, it says that the children of Aaron should put fire on the Mizbeach. And so Nadav and Aviu said to themselves, Amru, Afo Pisha Isha read it, Mina Shamayim, Mitzvah la Vimina Hadyot. So they said, Oh, even though on this first day, this inauguration of the Mishkan, fire is going to come down from the heaven. Actually, we also need to bring our own fire as well. We need to bring regular hediot fire um, too, which is which is not what Moshe told them to do. Uh, but that is what is done normally, right? I mean, that's sort of a great illustration of the principle that a little knowledge is very dangerous, right? They knew that normally the Kohanim in the course of their service are burning things on, on the Mizbeach, on the altar. Uh, and they thought, well, it should be appropriate today, too, just because there'll be fire coming from heaven to consume this uh, these inaugural sacrifice do- doesn't mean that we shouldn't also do as well. It's a very sound argument, but they were wrong, okay? So that, I think that's also like a classic, uh, really a very paradigmatic example of what is what could be dangerous in teaching Torah in the presence of one's rabbis. It's really, it's the presumption that one has learned enough to kind of, you know... Figure uh, it out on your own. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there, and there could be really dangerous consequences of knowing a little bit, right? Knowing enough to think that one has the confidence that... Uh, what, what, you know, one can uh, render decisions like above one's pay grade. As and so in that sense, right, whenever you're not in front of your rabbi and you are teaching, it's sort of like a, a bidiyavad situation. It's like, well, okay, I wish I were around my rabbi who would tell me what the real thing is. I, nothing, have now gone off without my rabbi. And so now I ha- I'm in a situation where I have to teach, but that's never an ideal situation. Perhaps, perhaps. Really, I, I, right? I, I, that's a I, strong yeah. reading. That's a, very, that's a very strong reading. I'm not quite sure I'm going to follow you there, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I think it's it's certainly the... But there's always a risk, right? Yes, I think teaching Torah is, a ris- is risky, even if it's not about uh, practical halakhic guidance, even if it's merely, quote-unquote, merely issues of ethics or issues of uh, belief and uh, uh, et cetera, uh, the stakes are really, really high. 
And uh, I think people who know very little and know they know very little are, are perhaps less likely to make mistakes. And people, of course, who know a great deal are less likely to make mistakes with so have experience and hopefully wisdom from experience, uh, as well as a great amount of knowledge. The people who are at greater risk are uh, some of us in, the, in between those two poles who uh, know enough to feel overly confident at times in, in what we do know and maybe not even aware of what we don't know, the, what Donald Rumsfeld called the unknown unknowns. <laughs> the, the gaps are knowledge that we don't even know uh, exist. Let's turn to the Nitziv. Nitziv is a, um, another 19th century uh, Torah commentator. He was a Rosh Hashiva uh, in, in Velazhin, uh, and the last Rosh Hashiva in Velazhin, the Russian government shut down the Yeshiva in his tenure, and he uh, ended his life in Warsaw. This commentary on the Torah is the product of his weekly Parsha classes that he gave in the Yeshiva, which was not typical of a Lithuanian Rosh Yeshiva who mostly focused on Talmud. He also gave a Parsha shir that was very appreciated by his students, and that became the nexus for, for this, uh, the genesis of this, of this project, the, uh, the Ha'emek Davar, his um, commentary on the Torah. So the Nativ cuts to this question of like, okay, but sometimes people teach Torah in front of their rabbis, like, do they all die immediately <laughs> with heavenly fire that incinerates them? And then the Nativ says, no, obviously. Uh, we've all seen that happen, and we've never seen someone be struck dead with heavenly fire because of it. Um, so the Nativ says, Right? So the justice element of God struck them immediately because they were in the castle of God. They were in the castle of the king of kings. Yeah, and, and therefore they, they, were, they were punished with extra strictness. He continues, Right? Okay, so if you do something outside, yeah, maybe it's really bad. Maybe they do deserve to be struck down dead by God, but generally God bides his time. It doesn't (laughs) happen right away. But in the palace of the king, like, you know, there's no there's no um, margin of error given and, and for these types of, of problems. And it kind of cuts to the perfection of the Mishkan, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the rest of our lives, yes, of course, we try and be as perfect as we can in our observance of mitzvot. But somehow the Mishkan was supposed to represent this place of perfect order and perfect observance. And so to have right from the beginning kind of a pretty strict enforcement of that, uh, I think that that's what the Nativ is trying to say is going on here that, or, or I mean, maybe what the Nitzv is trying to say is going on here is that the separation between like human blunders that happen all the time, there's a space for that. It's called everywhere but the Mikdash. Right, right. Indeed, indeed. Right. He says Lefnei Hashem, their sin being right before in the presence of God. Uh, like that word, that phrase in the, in the, in the verse, uh, Nitzv thinks is really crucial to understanding the episode and why, why it, it departs in such a dramatic way from, from what we are used to in our, in our own lives. Uh, where we, I guess, really depend on a little bit more forbearance uh, from God. Uh, one, one final point I, I just want to want to want to share. This is really the end, the very end of this episode. Um, uh, Moshe gets gets angry that one of the korbanot, one of the offerings, doesn't get eaten by Zarni Tamar, the surviving sons of Aaron. They were supposed to eat it. Why didn't they eat it? And uh, and Aaron here, who had been silent earlier, uh, speaks up uh, on behalf of his children, uh, and he says. Uh, Look, we, 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 we brought these offerings and we, we worked today. We went to work today in, in the Mishkan. And mm-hmm. it's a Karena Otika. And look what happened today. I, I'm bereft. My, my, my sons have died. 
Had I actually gone forward and eaten this korban chatzar in my state of mourning, would that have really been pleasing to God? And the Torah then says, Vishra Moshe Vitav And Moshe heard, he listens and says, okay, good, good point, good point you're making. This is one of the, the sources of, of Avelut, we actually, of mourning. We, we um, are studying the laws of mourning uh, following weekday shachrit, uh, for, and we have been for, uh, for, for a few weeks. And uh, it, it's a... The sort of philosophical uh, quandary that mourning raises. How could a human being uh, change his or her normal actions and activities and way of being in the world just because they suffered a lot, right? People die. God decides that people have only a finite time on this world. And when someone's time comes to an end, that's the end. And why should somebody else uh, act any differently? Why should they not do certain mitzvot in the same way? Uh, just because they're mourning. But no, the Torah says, actually, you, you don't connect to mitzvot in the same way. Somebody who uh, suffers a loss, God forbid, doesn't say brachot, doesn't, isn't allowed perhaps to even engage in tefillah, for example, until burial. And uh, during the 30 days or the shiva, 30 days, the, the year of mourning for a parent, there are uh, changes in behavior that reflect the loss. And the Torah is saying, yeah, you're allowed to have feelings. You're supposed to have feelings. And those feelings are, are meant to implicate your uh, connection to the world of mitzvot. The Rav Ami tells that my teacher uh, thought this was a very, very crucial episode in the Torah that uh, teaches something not just about mourning, but about uh, what it means to be a human being who is committed to the Torah, that we're supposed to be human beings who, who feel things and, and have loves and, and, and anger and sadness. Uh, and, and all of that is brought to the table when we study Torah and engage uh, in mitzvot. We're not, we're not meant to be uh, halachic robots. We're meant to be human beings who observe mitzvot. And then that observance is shaped by, uh, by our feelings and things that happen to us. And and that story kind of lies in tension with this idea that Rashi and the Gemara and Ervin bring about. Well, their problem was that they taught they they made their own halachic decisions, and and here at the end we have our own making his own halachic decisions, yeah, and and yeah. and yet it's it's good, right? Um, and so so there is kind of a tension. You know, we kind of laid it out a little bit strictly in our opening here, but but this last the kind of closure on this story of that of our own and his sons not eating. Yeah, uh, that korban and and Moshe finding it okay shows that you know it does it it, it seems like we're a very kind of hierarchical learning tradition, mm-hmm. but not exactly. And and, te- and students can challenge their teachers, and teachers can can learn from their students in, in deep ways. And that's um, that's also a very strong piece of our our tradition. Very nice, very nice. That's a, that, I think tension is also a part of our tradition. <laughs> uh, Let's move on to talk about dishwashers. Um, I um, probably receive more queries about dishwashers than any other halachic topic through the years, and uh, and you know why that is, right? Because like when I growing up, like we never koshered. My parents still don't kosher their dishwasher. Ah, interesting, interesting. So I, I, I uh, that that could be that could be why that could be why. So let's 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 sort of unpack that. I think the earliest dishwashers were made out of porcelain. They ha- and porcelain. Uh, generally cannot be koshered under most circumstances. And so it was just taken for granted that you had to have a new dishwasher uh, and it could not be koshered. Uh, and subsequently, dishwashers were made out of out of plastic or, or, or metal. And and for a long time, people felt you couldn't kosher plastic. Yeah, people were cautious about plastic. We didn't really know what to do with it. Is it like, uh, is it like porcelain that can't be, that absor- or, or earthenware that absorbs tastes and can never be purged of those tastes? Or is it more similar to glass, which maybe doesn't absorb taste at all? Or is it more similar to uh, to metal, which absorbs taste, but expels it, uh, expunges that taste uh, very, very easily. And and uh, for, for a number of years, decades, I guess, since the introduction of dishwashers, it, it was there was a common sort of instructions given in the United States that uh, pl- we should be strict about plastic and not 
Kasher plastic. And, and, and that, that makes sense, right? Like if you have Tupperware and then you put tomato sauce into it, your Tupperware turned pink forever now. Right, so to say, top, you know, plastic absorbs and doesn't give off. I'd say maybe it depends on the top, on the plastic. I think certain right. certain types of plastic uh, uh, absorbs and, and doesn't easily ex- expel that 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 taste or, or the color certainly, and other types of plastics do. Uh, sure. And I think the higher quality plastics are are a little bit less porous. Uh, even in, the, in this era, though, of, of you can't kosher plastic and dishwashers, there were. Uh, concessions made that uh, suggest uh, Moshe Feinstein, for example, who I think you know did, didn't uh, you know he said dishwashers could be could be kashered after a year, but he said if you really need to within the year for like tzorka, then you could. So he's basically conceding you can kasher them. He just felt that it was uh, you know appropriate to be stricter. Um, you know, lechachila, right? With absent any extenuating circumstances. In Israel, the dominant uh, halachic position was that plastic can be either it doesn't absorb anything, it's non-porous entirely, or if it's porous, it should follow the rules of most other porous things that in the same method at which it absorbs, it can expel those absorbed tastes. So if uh, you stick a plastic spoon into your pot of um, chili, okay, and maybe it absorbs some of that meaty taste uh, when it was stirred during your chili pot, then if you stick it into a pot of boiling water, which is the same method, the same heat, the same intensity, but which it absorbed the meat, it can then expel uh, that that meat taste. And and therefore, based on this comfort with plastic in Israel, dishwashers could be kashered, whether they're metal, whether they're plastic, uh, in sort of a fairly routine way. Um, I, uh, Sarah and I, I know I rented an apartment uh, in Jerusalem in the 2007-2008 academic year. Uh, that year I was a student at Yeshivat Haaretzion, and I was you know, commute out, out to the Gush every day. Uh, our landlords were, were actually, you know, they're, they're uh, were learn, learned people. Uh, our landlady actually has subs- um, subs- leaps and she's published several books on uh, mm. uh, rabbinics and uh, sort of a, a important Tamidat uh, Chachamim. Her husband, uh, also a, a alumnus of uh, the Hezer program at Yeshivat Haaretzion, and uh, and the dishwasher in their apartment that we rented was uh, according to the position that he had been taught by Rav Barakigi, who at the time was uh, already one of the Rashi Yeshiva uh, there, who says that the way to kosher dishwasher is to make sure there's no actual food residue uh, anywhere in the dishwasher. Uh, they have little filters and traps that like kind of collect food, ready, make sure that's washed out. There's no actual food anywhere in the dishwasher. Uh, and then uh, make sure it hasn't been used for 24 hours and then to run it once uh, with soap on its hottest uh, and strongest setting. And in that way, whatever taste and flavors may have been absorbed in to the walls of the dishwasher or into the racks of the dishwasher will be expelled in that same method of super hot water with soap, etc. And that's, and that's been my position uh, from that time until now. And that, that, that's what is on the Shul's Kashri Policy, Community Standards Kashri Policy. And that's what I um, recommend people do for Pesach as well. There's actually a further ground for leniency, uh, in fact. Uh, and that's because dishwashers uh, are typically used with soap. And if you're careful to always use soap with your dishwasher, uh, there, there really is no way that you could have a kosher mishap, no matter what goes into the dishwasher, uh, because of principle in Hebrew called not by not. It's an acronym, no tain tam by no tain tam, and, and an absorbed taste that goes through a second round of being absorbed uh, is already too impotent to actually have kashrut uh, implications. Uh, so uh, let's, let's well talk this through. Uh, you don't have dairy and meat, even if, even if you were to accidentally, let's say, accidentally put a, a meat uh, fork into your dairy dishwasher, uh, you're not actually having any meat and dairy touch each other. Uh, your, your silverware shouldn't, you know, is not um, up again. You know, the, the meat 
there's no meat on the fork when it goes into the dishwasher. Even if you have, so let's say, meaty residue on that plate that accidentally goes in, it's not touching the uh, any dairy. It's not touching the other plates. And as the soapy water is circulating through the dishwasher, that meat is coming into contact with that soapy water. That soapy water is going to, to for not by not, even even say, sorry, yeah. it's really the, the pugum. Thank you. The, yeah. the, the 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 soapy water is going to make the meat taste rancid. It's going to ruin the taste of that meat. Soap doesn't taste good, uh, and so the taste that might then subsequently uh, come into contact with your dairy dishes or uh, dairy silverware is going to be a a rancid. Uh, meaty taste and a rancid meaty taste that gets meat mixed with dairy does not render that um, anything non-kosher because it's no longer a good taste. Uh, that does not mean that you should put your meat and dairy in the dishwasher at the same time, just to be clear. Correct. Although the Shulchan Aruch seems to say that you can and should. Uh, yes. We're a little more strict about that. I think we're worried that what if uh, there, there might be pieces of meat and pieces of dairy that do come into direct content. And maybe the water in there is really hot before you before the soap is let out of the soap trap and maybe the dishwasher isn't a cliche Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we, don't, we don't do that, okay? Yeah. Uh, uh, despite the Shulchan Aruch explicitly saying you can wash dairy and meat in the same vat of yeah. big pot of, of, of hot water with soap, uh, we're a little more strict. We are more strict than that. Uh, but it does mean that if you are careful to always use soap, and I actually always sprinkle a little bit of soap powder you know, outside of the little thing that it goes into so that from the moment the dishwasher begins running, even before the, I don't know when in the cycle the soap thing pops open, but from the very first moments, there's soap in there in that mixture circulating around. And then if, I, if accidentally uh, you, you open the dishwasher after it's been run, you're like, oh my gosh, somebody put a, a meat fork in my dairy dishwasher. Uh, like It's okay. There's no, you don't have to worry after the fact if you make a mistake. Uh, even if we're not, uh, we, we don't recommend and don't encourage uh, putting dairy and meat stuff in the dishwasher uh, at the same time. So just to recap, I want to kosher my dishwasher for Pesach. What do I do? So you should clean out the filter, find the filter, clean it out. It's a good thing to do in general, know, in general uh, once, every, yeah. once every while. If you haven't done it in a while, you'll, you'll be uh, excited to discover what, what lies waiting for you there. That should be cleaned. <laughs> and in my New York apartment, there were bugs that loved our dishwasher. It was disgusting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, welcome to New York. This is why we moved to Chicago. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, you no want to clean that no, out. No bugs in Chicago. You want to clean that out pretty regularly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so clean that out. There shouldn't be any food residue in the dishwasher itself. Uh, let the dishwasher uh, lie fallow for, a tw- fallow. for 24 <laughs> hours. On your dishwasher. Yes. Uh, let it rest for 24 hours and then run it once with soap on its hottest and highest setting. We're here with Rabbi Paul Seger. Fantastic. So, uh, Rabbi Seger, please, please tell us uh, how your family came to Lakeview and how you discovered the shul. Well, we actually got, uh, we were living in Chicago starting in 1995 and moved around quite a bit. I was downtown for a year before Linda came to join me because our youngest child was a senior in high school in Rochester, New York, and we wanted him to be able to finish out high school. So I lived downtown and went to Elm Street for a year. And when Linda came, uh, we first spent a year we rented in West Rogers Park, and then we rented for a year in uh, Skokie and had heard about Anshay Shalom and uh, uh, Norm and Doris Levitz invited us to spend Shabbat with them in uh, Lakeview. We enjoyed it very much and uh, subsequently bought uh, our apartment. So we've been here about 20 years. 
Very nice, very nice. And and can you tell us what what do you appreciate about this community? I think the, among the things that we enjoyed the uh, have enjoyed the most is the diversity of ages, the fact that it's intergenerational, the fact that it's a open Orthodox community, and that there are relationships with the other shuls in the neighborhood. Um, we've been attracted and uh, stayed here for the rabbis <laughs> for the learning. And for just the sense of community, we very much like the idea of living in the city in proximity to downtown and uh, in a neighborhood as opposed to suburban living. So if I wanted to meet you after listening to this podcast, where would I, where would I go? Where would I find you? Um, well, I sort of uh, shift back and forth between the Hashkama Minion and upstairs. I went to the Hashkama Minion for a bunch of years, and then when I got to be the president of the show, I felt it was important to be in the main uh, service and have done that. But I'm back and forth. But when I'm um, in the main show, which is most frequently, I don't know, I'm in the middle section on the right near the aisle down about – one third up from the front. Uh, I used to sit uh, on, on the far right side, uh, further back. But frankly, the talking got so too much, and uh, I, I moved away. That's already ten years ago, so I don't think it counts. <laughs> no one talks in show anymore. Right? <laughs> yeah, fortunately, fortunately, yeah. <laughs> great, great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Straw Hat. We appreciate your feedback. Please uh, come find us with your positive feedback and questions. And negative feedback, please send by fax only to the Shul office. Thank you so much to our producer, Haley Leventhal. And the music that you have heard throughout this episode is three from the album Proverbs by Les Hayden and used under a Creative Commons license.